Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story, The Adventure of the Three Garadebs, by author Conan Doyle. It may have been a comedy, or it may have been a tragedy. It cost one man his reason. It cost me a bloodletting. And it cost yet another man the penalties of the law. Yet there was certainly an element of comedy. Well, you shall judge for yourselves. I remember the date very well, for it was in the same month that Holmes refused a knighthood for services which may perhaps someday be described. I can only refer to the matter in passing, for in my position of partner and confident, I only refer to the matter in passing, for in my position of partner and confidant, I am obliged to be particularly careful to avoid any indiscretion. I repeat, however, that this enables me to fix the date, which was the latter end of June 1902, shortly after the conclusion of the South African War. Holmes had spent several days in bed, as was his habit from time to time, but he emerged that morning with a long, foolscap document in his hand and a twinkle of amusement in his austere grey eyes. "'There's a chance for you to make some money, friend Watson,' said he." Have you ever heard the name of Garadib? I admitted that I had not. Well, if you can lay your hand upon a Garadib, there's money in it. Why? Ah, that's a long story. Rather a whimsical one, too. I don't think in all our explorations of human complexities we have ever come upon anything more singular. The fellow will be here presently for cross-examination, so I won't open the matter up until he comes. But, meanwhile, that's the name we want. The telephone directory lay on the table beside me, and I turned over the pages in a rather hopeless quest. But to my amazement, there was this strange name in its due place. I gave a cry of triumph. There you are, Holmes. Here it is. Holmes took the book from my hand. Garadab N., he read. 136 Little Ryder Street, West. Sorry to disappoint you, my dear Watson, but this is the man itself. That is the address upon his letter. We want another to match him. Mrs. Hudson had come in with a card upon her tray. I took it up and glanced at it. Why, here it is, I cried in amazement. This is a different initial. John Garadib, Counselor at Law, Moorville, Kansas, USA. Holmes smiled as he looked at the card. I'm afraid you must make yet another effort, Watson, said he. This gentleman is also in the plot already, though I certainly did not expect to see him this morning. However, he is in a position to tell us a good deal which I want to know. A moment later, he was in the room. Mr. John Garadib, Counselor at Law, was a short, powerful man with a round, fresh, clean-shaven face, characteristic of so many American men of affairs. The general effect was chubby and rather childlike, so that one received the impression of quite a young man with a broad-set smile upon his face. 
His eyes, however, were arresting. Seldom in any human head have I seen a pair which bespoke a more intense inward life. So bright were they, so alert, so responsive to every change of thought. His accent was American, but was not accompanied by any eccentricity of speech. Mr. Holmes, he asked, glancing from one to the other. Ah, yes. Your pictures are not unlike you, sir, if I may say so. I believe you had a letter from my namesake, Mr. Nathan Garrett, have you not? Pray sit down, said Sherlock Holmes. We shall, I fancy, have a good deal to discuss. He took up his sheets of foolscap. You are, of course, the Mr. John Garrett mentioned in this document. But surely you've been in England some time. Why do you say that, Mr. Holmes? I seem to read sudden suspicion in those expressive eyes. Your whole outfit is English. Mr. Garrett forced a laugh. I've read of your tricks, Mr. Holmes, but I never thought I would be the subject of them. Where do you read that? The shoulder cut of your coat, the toes of your boots. Could anyone doubt it? Well, well, I had no idea. I was so obvious a britcher. But business brought me over here some time ago, and so, as you say, my outfit is nearly all London. However, I guess your time is of value, and we did not meet to talk about the cut of my socks. What about getting down to that paper you hold in your hand? Holmes had in some way ruffled our visitor, whose chubby face had assumed a far less amiable expression. Patience, patience, Mr. Garadib, said my friend in a soothing voice. Dr. Watson would tell you that these little digressions of mine sometimes prove in the end to have some bearing on the matter. But why did Mr. Nathan Garadib not come with you? Why did he ever drag you into it at all? asked our visitor with a sudden outflame of anger. What in thunder had you to do with it? Here was a bit of professional business between two gentlemen, and one of them must needs call in a detective. I saw him this morning, and he told me this fool trick he had played me, and that's why I am here. But I feel bad about it all the same. There was no reflection upon you, Mr. Garadib. It was simply zeal upon his part to gain your end, an end which is, I understand, equally vital for both of you. You knew that I had means of getting information, and therefore it was very natural that he should apply to me. Our visitor's angry face gradually cleared. Well, that puts it different, said he. When I went to see him this morning, and he had told me he had sent to a detective, I just asked for your address and came right away. I don't want police butting into a private matter. But if you are content just to help us find the man, there can be no harm in that. Well, that's just how it stands, said Holmes. And now, sir, since you are here, we had best have a clear account from your own lips. My friend here knows nothing of the details. Mr. Garadib surveyed me with not too friendly a gaze. Need he know? he asked. We usually work together. Well, there's no reason it should be kept a secret. I'll give you the facts as short as I can make them. If you come from Kansas, I would not need to explain to you who Alexander Hamilton Garadib was. 
He made his money in real estate and afterwards in the wheat pit at Chicago. But he spent it in buying up as much land as would make one of your counties, lying along the Arkansas River west of Fort Dodge. It's grazing land and lumber land and arable land and mineralized land and just about every sort of land that brings dollars to the man that owns it. He had no kith nor kin, or if he had, I never heard of it. But he took a kind of pride in the oddness of his name. That's what brought us together. I was in the law at Topeka, and one day I had a visit from the old man, and he was tickled to death to meet another man with his own name. It was his pet fad, and he was dead set to find out if there were any more Garadubs in the world. Find me another, said he. I told him I was a busy man and could not spend my life hiking round the world in search of Garadubs. Nonetheless, said he, that is just what you will do if things pan out as I planned them. I thought he was joking, but there was a powerful lot of meaning in the words, so I was soon to discover. For he died within a year of saying them, and he left a will behind them. It was the oddest will that has ever been filed in the state of Kansas. His property was divided into three parts, and I was to have one on condition that I find two Garadubs who would share the remainder. It's five million dollars for each if it is a cent, but we can't lay a finger on it until we have all three stand in a row. It was so big a chance that I just let my legal practice slide, and I set forth looking for Garadubs. There is not one in the United States. I went through it, sir, with a fine-toothed comb, and never a Garadub could I catch. Then I tried the old country. Sure enough, there was a name in the London telephone directory. I went after him two days ago and explained the whole matter to him. But he is a lone man, like myself, with some woman relations, but no men. It says three adult men in the will. So you see, we still have a vacancy, and if you can help to fill it, we will be very ready to pay your charges. Well, Watson, said Holmes with a smile, I said it was rather whimsical, did I not? I should have thought, sir, that your obvious way would be to advertise in the agony columns of the papers. I have done that, Mr. Holmes. No replies. Dear me. Well, it is certainly a most curious little problem. I may take a glance at it in my leisure. By the way, it is curious that you should have come from Topeka. I used to have a correspondent. He's dead now. Old Dr. Lysander Starr, who was mayor in 1890. Good old Dr. Starr, said our visitor. His name is still honored. Well, Mr. Holmes, I suppose all we can do is to report to you and let you know how we progress. I reckon you will hear within a day or two. With this assurance, our American bowed and departed. Holmes had lit his pipe, and he sat for some time with a curious smile upon his face. Well, I asked at last. I was wondering, Watson, just wondering. At what? Holmes took his pipe from his lips. I was wondering, Watson, what on earth could be the object of this man in telling us such a rigmarole of lies? I nearly asked them so, for there are times when a brutal frontal attack is the best policy, but I judged it better to let him think he had fooled us. 
Here is a man with an English coat frayed at the elbow and trousers bagged at the knee with a year's wear, and yet by this documented by his own account, he's a provincial American lately landed in London. There have been no advertisements in the agony columns. You know that I miss nothing there. They're my favorite cover for putting up a bird, and I would never have overlooked such a cock pheasant as that. I never knew a Dr. Lysander star of Topeka. Touch him where you would. He was false. I think the fellow is really an American, but he has worn his accent smooth with years of London. What is his game, then? And what motive lies behind this preposterous search for Garadibs? It's worth our attention. For granting that the man is a rascal, he is certainly a complex and ingenious one. We must now find out if our other correspondent is a fraud also. Just ring him up, Watson. I did so, and heard a thin, quavering voice at the other end of the line. Yes, yes, I am Mr. Nathan Garadub. Is Mr. Holmes there? I should very much like to have a word with Mr. Holmes. My friend took the instrument, and I heard the usual syncopated dialogue. Yes, he has been here. I understand that you don't know him. How long? Only two days. Yes, yes, of course, it is a most captivating prospect. Will you be at home this evening? I suppose your namesake will not be there. Very good. We will come then, for I would rather have a chat without him. Dr. Watson will come with me. I understand from your note that you did not go out often. Well, we shall be round about six. You need not mention it to the American lawyer. Very good. Goodbye. It was twilight of a lovely spring evening, and even Little Ryder Street, one of the smaller offshoots from the Edgware Road, within a stone cast of old Tyburn tree of evil memory, looked golden and wonderful in the slanting rays of the setting sun. The particular house to which we were directed was a large, old-fashioned, early Georgian edifice, with a flat brick face broken only by two deep bay windows on the ground floor. It was on this ground floor that our client lived, and indeed, the low windows proved to be the front of the huge room in which he spent his waking hours. Holmes pointed as we passed to the small brass plate which bore the curious name. Up some years, Watson, he remarked, indicating its discolored surface. It's his real name, anyhow, and that is something to note. The house had a common stair, and there were a number of names painted in the hall, some indicating offices and some private chambers. It was not a collection of residential flats, but rather the abode of bohemian bachelors. Our client opened the door for us himself and apologized by saying that the woman in charge left at four o'clock. Mr. Nathan Garrida proved to be a very tall, loose-jointed, round-backed person, gaunt and bald, some sixty-odd years of age. He had a cadaverous face, with the dull, dead skin of a man to whom exercise was unknown. Large round spectacles and a small projecting goat's beard combined with his stooping attitude to give him an expression of peering curiosity. The general effect, however, was amiable, though eccentric. The room was as curious as its occupant. 
It looked like a small museum. It was both broad and deep, with cupboards and cabinets all round, crowded with specimens, geological and anatomical. Cases of butterflies and moths flanked each side of the entrance. A large table in the center was littered with all sorts of debris, while the tall brass tube of a powerful microscope bristled up among them. As I glanced round, I was surprised at the universality of the man's interests. Here was a case of ancient coins. There was a cabinet of flint instruments. Behind a central table was a large cupboard of fossil bones. Above was a line of plaster skulls with such names as Neanderthal, Heidelberg, Cro-Magnon printed beneath them. It was clear that he was a student of many subjects. As he stood in front of us now, he held a piece of chamois leather in his right hand, with which he was polishing a coin. Sarah Cohen, of the best period, he explained, holding it up. They degenerated greatly towards the end. At their best I hold them supreme, though some prefer the Alexandrian school. You will find a chair here, Mr. Holmes. Pray allow me to clear these bones. And you, sir, yes, Dr. Watson, if you would have the goodness to put the Japanese vase to one side. You see round me my little interests in life. My doctor lectures me about never going out, but why should I go out when I have so much to hold me here? I can assure you that the adequate cataloging of one of these cabinets would take me three good months. Holmes looked round him with curiosity. But do you tell me that you never go out, he said. Now and again I drive down to Sotheby's or Christie's. Otherwise I very seldom leave my room. I am not too strong and my researches are very absorbing. But you can imagine, Mr. Holmes, what a terrific shock, pleasant but terrific, it was for me when I heard of this unparalleled good fortune. It only needs one more Garadub to complete the matter, and surely we can find one. I had a brother, but he is dead, and female relatives are disqualified. But there must surely be others in the world. I had heard that you handled strange cases, and that was why I sent to you. Of course, this American gentleman is quite right, and I should have taken his advice first, but I acted for the best. I think you acted very wisely indeed, said Holmes. But are you really anxious to acquire an estate in America? Certainly not, sir. Nothing would induce me to leave my collection. But this gentleman has assured me that he will buy me out as soon as we have established our claim. Five million dollars was the sum named. There are a dozen specimens in the market at the present moment which fill gaps in my collection and which I am unable to purchase for a want of a few hundred pounds. Just think what I could do with five million dollars. Why... I have the nucleus of a national collection. I shall be the Hans Sloan of my age. His eyes gleamed behind his great spectacles. It was very clear that no pains would be spared by Mr. Nathan Garadib in finding a namesake. 
I merely called to make your acquaintance. And there is no reason why I should interrupt your studies, said Holmes. I prefer to establish personal touch with those whom I do business. There are few questions I need ask, for I have your very clear narrative in my pocket, and I filled up the blanks when this American gentleman called. I understand that up to this week you were unaware of his existence. That is so. He called last Tuesday. Did he tell you of our interview today? Yes. He came straight back to me. He had been very angry. Why should he be angry? He seemed to think it was some reflection on his honor. But he was quite cheerful again when he returned. Did he suggest any course of action? No, sir, he did not. Has he had or asked for any money from you? No, sir, never. You see no possible object he has in view? None, except what he states. Did you tell him of our telephone appointment? Yes, sir, I did. Holmes was lost in thought. I could see that he was puzzled. Have you any articles of great value in your collection? No, sir, I am not a rich man. It is a good collection, but not a very valuable one. You have no fear of burglars? Not the least. How long have you been in these rooms? Nearly five years. Holmes's cross-examination was interrupted by an imperative knocking at the door. No sooner had our client unlatched it than the American lawyer burst excitedly into the room. Here you are, he cried, waving a paper over his head. I thought it should be in time to get you. Mr. Nathan Garrett, up my congratulations. You are a rich man, sir. Our business is happily finished and all is well. As to you, Mr. Holmes, we can only say we are sorry if we have given you any useless trouble. He handed over the paper to our client, who stood staring at a marked document. Holmes and I leaned forward and read it over his shoulder. This is how it ran. We'll continue our story on our next episode. We are always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a Buy Me a Coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>